passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I have on the top of your outline a little verse. It says this, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Now, maybe you've quoted that verse. I've certainly quoted that verse when I've talked to people who are atheists. You know, say, oh, this is, there's no God out there. And I say, look at the beauty of creation. Look at everything coming to life in the spring. Look at the intricacy of all the fish in the lakes. Look at the amazing vastness of space. You mean to tell me that this is all a chance? The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth is handiwork. Everything about his creation just screams that God exists. And then as I was studying this week, I came to the realization that I may have slightly misused or slightly misunderstood this verse. Because it doesn't say the fool says in his mind there is no God. It says the fool says in his heart Heart, there is no God. Now, I don't think there's a single person in this room who would say in their mind that there is no God. We all know that, even instinctively we know that. But it's a much more penetrating question to ask, do we ever say that in our heart? When we're under pressure, when life is difficult, when we feel discouraged, in our heart, do we ever say, God, where are you? God, I don't think you care. We always struggle with that in our heart, don't we? Yet the psalmist says, it's only a fool who would say in their heart, there is no God. This morning as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel 13 and we look a little bit at King Saul, we're going to see that actually he turns out to be a fool. In his heart, he will turn around and say, there is no God. So go ahead and take your outlines out. And the first point is just background. Let's remember where we've come from. Remember the process that we've gone through with Saul to be anointed king. It began back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, but he wasn't actually anointed king until 1 Samuel chapter 10. But then when he was anointed king, he didn't actually spring to life and do anything as king. He just sort of ignored the anointing, ignored all the supernatural signs God had shown him and the Holy Spirit's empowerment just went back home and didn't tell anybody. So Samuel gave another run at it. Instead of anointing him privately, now Samuel anointed him publicly so he couldn't get out of that one. Samuel knew, or Saul knew that the lot was going to fall to him, but what was he doing? Hiding. Hiding in the baggage. That's not your fearless leader. And he was publicly anointed king. But what did he do? Went back home, ignored his calling, and went back to farming on the family farm in Gibeah. It wasn't until 1 Samuel chapter 12 where Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was threatening Jabesh Gilead to conquer that city. It was the last city to be conquered east of the Jordan. And Nahash, remember, had a really nasty habit of how he branded the people he conquered. He gouged out their right eye. 
Nahash was going to do that to Jabesh Gilead. But there was a connection between Gibeah, where Saul lived, and Jabesh Gilead, and actually their family, their relatives. And it's when Saul hears that his relatives are about ready to be conquered and lose their right eye that he finally sprung into action. He rose up, he called the people to war, they surrounded Nahash, they destroyed Nahash. It was a wonderful victory. It was truly Saul's finest hour. Samuel, at that point, said, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. Let's finally reaffirm Saul as king. And then last week, we studied one of Samuel's speeches to the people while at Gilgal. So as we dive into the 13th chapter, Saul is finally not just anointed king, privately and publicly, but finally, he's actually acting like a king. And with that, we begin with a very perplexing verse. It says this, Saul lived for one year, then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, then it continues. The Hebrew here is very strange. It's difficult to translate. And it literally reads that Saul was, um, son, Saul was son for a year. That would mean in Hebrew, Saul was a one-year-old when he became king. And then he reigned, it says, for two years. The translators go, well, that doesn't make sense. He couldn't have been a one-year-old when he became king, and he certainly didn't reign for just two years. I mean, he doesn't die till 1 Samuel 31. We've got a lot more than two years going on here. What are we supposed to do about this? It's very confusing. You may notice that in the footnote of the ESV, it says that um, some translations, some Greek translations say that that Saul was 30 years old when he became king. Well, that's a little different. Where did the 30 come from? Well, the NIV, and some of you have the NIV, will say a completely different translation here. Here's the NIV for you. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Wow, that's different. How did we get there? I'll let you know what happened. The NIV chose to depart from the literal reading of the Hebrew at this point, because the literal reading of the Hebrew is so awkward and seems to make no sense. And what they did is they actually followed the Septuagint. Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was commonly used in the days of, of Jesus. And the Septuagint says that Saul was 30 years old when he became king. Now, where do you get the he reigned 42 years? They borrowed that from Acts chapter 13, verse 21, where um, Paul said that Saul reigned for 40 years as king. Well, that's interesting. So they sort of cut and pasted a bunch of stuff in there, but it's not originally what the Hebrews said. Some of you say, well, why don't we just go to another more literal translation? Like, take the New American Standard Bible, NESB. That's pretty good, trusted stuff. What does um, that say? It says, Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 32 years over Israel. 
more strange numbers. Well, here's some problems with these numbers. If you go to the NIV's translation, that Saul was 30 years old when he became king, we're about ready to meet Jonathan. You guys know Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan will serve as a uh, general in Saul's military. If Saul is 30 years old when he becomes king and Jonathan, his son, is general, do the math on that. So Jonathan is maybe at youngest 25, which means Saul must have had him as a child at age five. Hey, it doesn't seem to add up to me. So what you find is that some translations, that by the way are good translations, NIV, NASB, they've departed from the Hebrew because it's so strange at this point and they've gone after, they've tried to pull in some later Greek translations and done some math to get that verse. So what should we do? Should we read the original Hebrew, which the ESV does, tries to be pretty close to it, or should we depart and follow some later Greek manuscripts like the NIV and the NASB do? Well, here's my answer. My answer is you always stick to the original text as closely as you can, like the ESV does. And if you cannot figure out why it says what it says, don't assume the text is wrong. Assume your understanding of the text is wrong. And here's what I uh, thought about during the week and I did some research and looked at some scholars. Here's what I think is going on. When it says Saul is a one year old, it's not saying that Saul was literally one years old. What it is saying is it took one year for Saul to become king. Remember, he was anointed in chapter 10, then he hid. Then he was publicly anointed, and then he hid. And then he finally actually stepped to the plate when the Ammonites attacked. That's a period of process of about one year to get his act together. Then, what about the fact that he reigned for two years? Saul actually only technically does reign for two years because it's only two chapters later in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that God will reject him as king. And in 1 Samuel 16, David will be anointed king. And for the rest of the book, Saul is a lame duck king. He is in office, but it's just waiting till he dies and gets kicked out of office for David to assume the throne. So that's what's going on here, which in my mind is stick with the Hebrew. Maybe you can figure it out. Now, I'll say this. After first sermon when I said this, um, some people said, you're bashing the NIV. I'm like, no, I'm not bashing the NIV. I just want it when you go to your life groups and somebody takes out an NIV and somebody takes out an ESV and they're completely different, you know what's going on. One followed the Greek, one followed the original Hebrew. All right, back to the text. First thing we see here is when we obey God, sometimes things will actually get worse before they get better. Remember, uh, the people have asked for a king to fight their battles. The first battle that um, Saul fought for them was against the Ammonites. Those are the people that were attacking them um, east of the Jordan. But if you go back originally to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16, Saul was giving them specifically to battle against the Philistines, which are the people that are the west of the Jordan. Let's go ahead and show that. I'll use some maps today. 
You can see the Jordan River. Philistia, or the area of the Philistines, is right there on the coast. They're a coastal people. Remember, they've landed there historically, come in from the ocean, and they're one of Israel's enemies. The key to understanding the rest of this chapter is to remember what um, Saul was told to do back in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Do you remember this if you've been with us? That when Saul was privately anointed king, Saul, yeah, when Saul was privately anointed king, Samuel gave him three signs and the Holy Spirit rushed on him and he was supposed to attack the Philistine fortress at Gibeah, which was located deep in the heart of Israelite territory. Did he do that? Do you remember? He ignored that. He didn't do anything about that. He was given two commands to attack that Philistine garrison and then to go to Gilgal and wait seven days for Samuel to come to give him further instructions. Now that Saul is officially and unambiguously anointed and functioning as king, it would make sense for him to start taking care of this Philistine enemy which was, he was originally brought to, king, to kingship to do. And when was he told to take care of this Philistine enemy? If our chronology of 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1 is correct, that happened about a year before this. And he has ignored doing this. Since we're going to go to war in a moment, so there's sort of a, a next details about Saul's army. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So as king, Saul coming out of Gilgal, which we saw the last two weeks, he establishes an army. It's an army of about 3,000 elite soldiers. 2,000 he keeps with himself located in the fortress at Michmash. Another thousand, he let's stay with his son, who serves as a general in his army. This is Jonathan, and they are at Gibeah of Benjamin. Just to show you where these places are located at, you can see how Michmash is in the hill country there. It is approximately 6.8 miles north of where Jerusalem is located at. Go ahead and give us the next slide. And that is where Gibeah, where Jonathan's fortress is located at, it is 4.3 miles southwest of Michmash. They're not too far from one another, but Saul locates these two army garrisons rather centrally in the country. That way he can respond in any direction to a threat coming into the country, and there's at least two. So he can respond to threats in two different directions. Everybody else is in the military reserves and he sends them home. 3,000 are on active duty. And as I mentioned, this is the first time we will hear of Jonathan. He's going to be a wonderful guy. We're going to learn a lot more about him in the upcoming weeks. The next thing we read is this. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. Saul was originally commanded to do this a year before. Saul didn't get around to doing his job. So at least Saul's son 
did what he should have done. He attacked and destroyed this Philistine outpost. Let me show you where Geba is. Geba uh, is located right there. And incidentally, uh, geographically, from what we know historically in these sources, they are so close together, Geba and Gibeah, it's sort of like saying North Spirit Lake and South Spirit Lake, and it's like sometimes they're used almost synonymously in different texts. So you find the Philistine fortress is right smack between Saul and Jonathan and their fortresses. Now before we breathe a sigh of relief, that somebody, it's Saul's son, Jonathan, has actually followed God's command and got rid of this garrison of Philistine soldiers deep inside of Israelite territory. How do you think the Philistines are going to react when they hear about this? What do you think? It's not going to go well. It says this, and the Philistines heard of it. The news traveled quickly down the mountains into the valley by the coast. Everybody heard of it. And the Philistines quickly declared war. Before we get into the Philistine retaliation, the text jumps back to Saul because Saul knows that war is going to follow. So it's time to call out the military reserves. It says, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. That is the way they would call um, the reserves out. They blew a trumpet. Go ahead and put that trumpet up there. It was a ram's horn that they used, something like this. And when you heard that trumpet blowing, it was a little bit like an air raid siren for us. Everybody stops what they're doing. They immediately respond. In this case, everybody grabs their weapons and they go to where the trumpet was being blown because you know the country was going to be under attack. It is time immensely to go to war. And here's what happens. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. Now, I think this is interesting. Had Saul defeated the garrison of the Philistines? Technically, who did it? His son. His son did what he should have done in the first place. But who wants to get all the credit in the newspaper? Saul. And now the Israelites stink to the Philistines. They can't stand the Israelites. They hate the Israelites. They want to wipe out the Israelites. And at this point, I'd like to pause and give you a little practical application. It's this. You know, sometimes obeying God's word leads to short-term difficulty. Isn't that true? Jonathan did what his father should have done. He obeyed God's word to wipe out the Philistines. And now it looks like the world is going to fall apart around them. The country is going to war. Things are falling apart. Now we, as the readers, know how this is going to end up. We know that ultimately God's going to use this whole situation to destroy the Philistines and free the Israelites from Philistine oppression. But at this point in the story, if you're in Israel, do you see all that coming? 
all you see is, Jonathan, did you have to obey the Lord because now our whole world is falling apart? And folks, it's no different for you and me as it was for them. Sometimes when you obey the Lord, you will face short-term difficulty. Maybe you're a student in school and you know that it's a tough test coming up and there's copies of prior year's tests going around that other people are looking at and they're using to get an advanced jump on the test. And you know it's the illegal thing to do. It's the wrong thing to do. Technically, it's a cheating thing to do. You choose not to cheat. Your friends choose to look at those old exams and actually cheat. And the grades come back and you have an average grade and they have a good grade and now your GPA is hit. Sometimes obeying God's word and doing the right thing will produce short-term difficulty. We should expect it. Maybe you're a manager at a plant and you're involved in production and you know that some of your other managers at other plants, they sort of pad their numbers a little bit, sort of inflate what they're doing, but you're honest. You put out the truth of what your production is and now your supervisor is looking at you and says, you're not doing a good job, but these guys are and you know that they're not honest. You're being honest and now you're paying for it because sometimes obeying God's word will lead to short term difficulties. That's always true. That's the way it was for Jonathan and Israel. And it's the way it is for us. The story continues. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So Saul leaves Michmash and heads down to Gilgal. Let's put that up there. That's where Gilgal is located in the plains. This is a place where the people have typically gathered. Remember, that's where they, they gathered after the, uh, Saul destroyed the Ammonites. That's where they, sort of everybody can meet there. It's nice and open. But most importantly is this. Saul remembers Samuel's instructions. Destroy the fortress at Gibeah, then go to Gilgal and wait for me for seven days and I will give you further instructions on what to do. And if our chronology of understanding 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse one is true, that was given to him about a year before. Here were these instructions that were given to him back in chapter 10. Then go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings Seven days you shall wait until I come and I'll show you what you shall do. So he's supposed to wait for Samuel who will offer the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and give him further instructions. Wait at Gilgal. Well, we've seen Saul's army. 3,000 in the regular army and now he's blown the horn, he's mustered the reserves. <sighs> Must feel good to have a lot of soldiers around you. Not until you see the Philistines. The Philistines that are coming and boy are there a lot of them. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots. 6,000 
thousand horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. The Israelites are about to get crushed. They are about to get slaughtered. They are completely outnumbered. 30,000 chariots. History tells us that each chariot had between two to three soldiers in it. 60 to 90,000 soldiers to drive those tanks in the ancient world. 6,000 in the cavalry. Men without number. And notice where they go. Saul has abandoned the fortress at Michmash, left there to go to Gilgal, and where do they go? Right into Saul's fortress at Michmash. Sort of freaks you out when your enemy takes over the place you just temporarily abandoned for a meeting. That's discouraging. Now, you can imagine the people of Israel are freaking out, big time. And that's what we see in the text. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, boy, is that an understatement. For the people were hard-pressed. They are going to crush us. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. Everybody starts to find a place to hide. And I think this is funny. When you have people that are hiding in tombs with dead bodies, you know they are afraid. They are desperate. And at first we think, well, at least Saul himself stayed there, didn't run and hide. He stayed at Gilgal. Well, I think the reason he stayed at Gilgal is he did not know what to do. He's desperate for help. Samuel said he'd be here in seven days, and if I leave, I'm going to miss him, so I'm going to stay there. But anybody else who's with him is shaking like a leaf when they see the military forces that have surrounded them. It's another little application to give you here as we study through this. God tests us to see what we trust. Did you know that? God tests us to see what we trust. Do you think God's purposes at this point are to ruin Saul? Or do you think God is about the business of testing Saul? God is not trying to ruin him. He is testing him to see what he will trust. Will Saul obey God's words to him through Samuel? Will he wait seven days to see what he should do as he sees the forces of the Philistines amassing against him? Or will he break God's word and do his own way, go his own, and do his own thing? This idea of God sometimes testing his people. It's a common theme throughout the Bible. You find it in other places. And there's a blessing that comes with passing the test. And there's usually some non-good consequences that come with failing the test. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. Do you guys remember Abraham? Waited forever for his son. God gave him his son Isaac. Then as Isaac was growing up and Isaac was the apple of Abraham's eye, the son he wanted so long, and then God said to Isaac, 
or said to Abraham, Abraham, go up to Mount Moriah. I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Now the test was, are you going to obey God's word or abandon God's word and do your own thing and go your own way? Now with Abraham, he obeyed God's word. He brought Isaac up onto Mount Moriah and where he had the knife in the air, literally it says in the Hebrews, as he began to move it, God yelled out, stop. Now I know that you trust me and will obey me. And God provided for a ram to be caught in the thicket that would take Isaac's place as the sacrifice. And there was a blessing that Abraham had because he obeyed God when he was tested. Will Saul obey God as he is being tested? Let's find out. Disobedience is always foolishness. Well, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Well, it starts off well. I can see Saul waiting as these masses of Philistines continue to keep growing on the hillsides and apart from him. And everyone's looking at them and Saul is running around camp. Anybody seen Samuel? He, he should be here any time now. Anybody, anybody seen Samuel? He should be here. But I bet you that week drug on super slow. Constantly looking for Samuel and then him not showing up. And it says this, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. This is not good. Saul didn't have much of an army to begin with. Now everybody is walking away from him and leaving him all alone. And Samuel, he still has not come. Old man, doesn't he know that by this people are walking away? He needs to be on time. He should have been early. But he wasn't there. So Saul decided he would act. And this is what he did. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. He chose under pressure to disobey God's word, to go his own direction, to take matters into his own hands and to do his own thing. Not a good idea. He didn't do well with this test. And guess who shows up just as he finishes? Our friendly neighborhood, Samuel. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. Now I suspect at first when Samuel showed up, Saul was relieved all this stress, all this pressure. What am I supposed to do with this crazy number of Philistines? Surely Samuel will know. He's always been a good leader. He's always been a wise leader. He's always been in touch with God. He's finally here. He can tell us what we need to do. So Saul walks out to see Samuel. This is what we see. And Saul went out to meet him and, and, and greet him. Ha, you're finally here. But the smile on Saul's face quickly melted away. Look what Samuel says to him. 
Samuel said, what have you done? The same kind of words that God gave to Adam and Eve when they were in the Garden of Eden and when they failed their test. What have you done? And I bet you those words and the tone from Samuel's mouth cut like a razor blade straight into Saul's heart. Now what do you think Saul should have done at that point? I'm sorry. I screwed up. Under pressure, I messed up. Please forgive me. That's called repentance. That's what we're supposed to do when we sin. But that's not what Saul does. Instead of repenting of his sin and owning his sin, he starts to justify his sin. And Saul said, Oh, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the, appoint, the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, well, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You know what this is called? It's called blame shifting. Blame shifting is... When you sin, you say it's somebody else's fault. It's a husband who yells at his wife and says, it's your fault for making me angry. It's your fault for making me raise my voice. No, it's not. That's the man's fault for raising his voice. He's shifting the blame to his sin onto somebody else. Blame shifting, as it says here, is not owning and repenting of my sin. It's blaming my sin on something or someone else. We do it all the time. It's the wrong response to sin. Look how we see Saul blame shifting. First thing he says this. He says, um, you know, hey, the army was scattering. I had to do something. Dude, you are completely outnumbered to begin with. It doesn't matter if your people are scattering. You wouldn't have been able to beat them anyway. It's a bad excuse. Number two, Samuel, it's your fault. You were late. If you were on time, Samuel, I would have had to do this. So he blames his sin on Samuel. Not a good response. Number three, he says, the Philistines have mustered at Michmash. They're only 10 miles away. It's an imminent pressure situation. So I had to like take matters in my own hands. Not a good excuse. And by the way, I didn't want to do this. Oh, I just forced myself. My heart didn't want to sin, but I just did it with my mind and my body. These are all excuses. Excuses for, to justify his breaking of God's word. It's the wrong response to sin. Here's an application for you. The way to fail a test from God is by believing that in certain situations, God's word can be disobeyed. The way to fail a test from God is believing that in certain situations, when the circumstances are right, I get to disobey God's word. Under pressure, Saul felt it was acceptable to break God's word, not to keep God's word. Folks, don't we do the exact same thing? 
under pressure, decide to break God's word. Two chapters from now, when we get to the Amalekites, it'll be a similar problem for Saul. He'll break God's word again under a different kind of pressure. And look how Samuel responds to him. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. My friends, we will all end up in stressful times. We'll all end up in stressful situations. We'll all end up in situations where it may seem wise for us to not quite tell the truth. We'll all end up in situations where we can really bend the truth. Those are times when it's a test. It's a test from God to see what we will do. And there's a blessing that comes with passing them. Now, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. In other words, it's not in your mind that you said there's no God out there, but it was in your heart under pressure. You acted like there was no God out there. And you have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. In other words, there were consequences for him not passing this test. His kingdom would not be established over Israel forever. That means that his son, Jonathan, will not become the next king. He will not begin a dynasty. Interesting thought here. The father sins and the son suffers. Isn't that what happened? The consequence of not passing the test. By the way, Jonathan, who is going to get to see him later on, is a great man, an amazing man. But he'll never be king. It's interesting how Saul is more fearful of the Philistines than he is of breaking God's word. When the truth is he should be more fearful of breaking God's word than he is of the Philistines. Isn't that the truth for us as well? What we should really fear is breaking God's word and offending the Almighty versus our situations and circumstances and friends around us. It's when we fear our situations, circumstances, and friends that we can so easily fail one of these tests. As it continues, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Saul arose and went up from Gilgal the rest of the people went up after Saul uh, to, to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So Samuel sort of departs at this point. Saul and his army goes to Gibeah of Benjamin, which I'll go ahead and put that on the map for you. You can see how they leave Gilgal, head back up there. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Well, that's not good. He started with 3,000 plus the military reserves. Now he's down to 600. 
And of course, there's 30,000 chariots of the Philistines, 6,000 cavalry, and people without number. And here's where we take an interesting turn. There's a difference between helplessness and hopelessness. Verse 16, and Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in, at Geba in, in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. The interesting part about that geographically is these two locations are only about a mile apart. Throw that up for me if you could. You can see that. It's really zoomed in on the map. You can literally see the other camp. You wonder, well, what is keeping them apart from one another? You can sort of see on this map, there's a little blue line in there. It shows you there's water that sometimes runs through there. And I thought, this doesn't help. This map is not good. So I actually went and checked out some photos. And I found this is a photo of the difference between these areas. Geba's on one side. And um, the other places on the, and Micmash is on the other side. And what separates it is a deep ravine between them. This is the ravine that is keeping these two armies apart. But from the one side, you can watch the other side. And this is what they see. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. <clears throat> one company turned toward Orphra to the land of Shaul. The other company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Essentially, Saul and his army sees raiding parties going out to the north, east, and west from the Philistines to destroy people, ravage the land, and there's absolutely nothing they can do to stop them because they, there's nothing they can do. Now it gets worse. Now there was no, <clears throat> no, no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge with two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. The Philistines had not allowed the Israelites to have a single blacksmith, so there was not a single metallic weapon, or there was almost no metallic weapons in the army. If you wanted your plow done, you had to go down to the Philistines. And by the way, the point of that mentioning of that price in there is the exorbitance of the price of what the Israelites had to play to get their farm implements taken care of. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. Oh boy, we have a really tough situation. Saul and Jonathan are down to an army of 600 people, and they are armed with sticks and stones. Not good. Fighting the Philistines, who have 30,000 iron chariots, 6,000 in cavalry, and people without number, all with iron weapons. Things will not go well. And it ends with this. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash as the battle is about to begin. 
And while it looks like the Philistines have all the military equipment and people they need on their side, there's one important ingredient they're missing. God. And while it looks like the Israelites has absolutely nothing on their side, just 600 men with sticks and stones, they do have the one thing they need, which is God. And God is going to make all the difference. And only a fool would think otherwise. Now as we leave, I want to give you some applications I'll read quickly. The center point of this chapter is Saul's test and Saul's failing of this, his test. A couple things about when God tests us. Number one, expect God will test us to reveal our hearts. It happens multiple times in scriptures. Sometimes, number two, God tests us with delays. You ever have that where it seems like God doesn't seem to come to the answer? That's one of the ways he tests. Remember, he delayed Samuel coming. Number three, God tests us by putting us in situations where obedience is hard. That's what happened with Saul. Number four, God tests us by seeing what we do with our sin when we're caught in our sin. Saul was caught. Did he repent? Blamed it on everybody else but himself. And the best news of all is this. Jesus is the one who passed all the tests from God, the tests that we fail. Folks, we're going to be tested, and I know at times we're going to fail those tests, but we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who never failed those tests, and he died for you and me. Amen? Dear Jesus, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for, in this chapter, giving us an idea of the incredible adversity your people faced at this moment. But the more adverse the circumstances they faced, the greater the victory that you would bring, and you would do it with you getting all the credit, and Saul and his soldiers getting really none of it. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for what this uh, chapter also teaches us about tests, that at times you will put us in tough situations not to ruin us, but to test us with the hope and promise that as we pass those tests, you love to reward us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.